Welcome to Wisdom for Life, where we sift through philosophy to find practical advice that you can use in your everyday life. Hi, I'm Dan Hayes, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Greg Sadler. And today, we are talking about... Pitfalls to labeling people good or bad. So, there's a lot of things that we're going to talk about with this. Why don't, why don't you give the, the lead-in about what you had in mind in talking about these, these pitfalls? So just the idea of like labeling someone as uh, like unadulterated good or, or evil, this idea of like someone has like a purely good character or like a purely evil character and thus uh, that then transfers that goodness or that evilness to all the actions that they might take throughout their entire lives and how this way of thinking about um, yourself and others has a lot of downsides. It's not that we can't use the words good or bad, but we should be really careful about how these uh, words can lead us to some potentially negative outcomes. Yeah, it, it reminded me as you were saying that about, you know, like in mathematics, we say, well, one thing is equal to another thing, or we use these metaphors of like, you know, from a good tree comes good fruit, or this, this transfer that we seem to assume takes place for a good person they're always going to be doing good actions and so when we see them doing something that's kind of sketchy we're like well they must have a good reason for it or somebody who we think is bad you know even if they do something good we're like well they must have some nefarious purposes behind what they're doing even though they are helping the old lady across the street it's probably so they can mug her afterwards or just to look good enough that we they can take us off our guard and you know it, it could be i suppose not just their actions but maybe also people connected to them so from good parents we should expect really good children right or mm -hmm. vice versa and then we're surprised and we find out that somebody who you know is a really great person turned out to have awful parents or siblings or co-workers or things things like that so why do you think people buy into this why why do people need others or themselves to be like totally good or totally bad to a certain extent, it's just an easy heuristic. Uh, heuristic is just an idea of a, a rule of thumb that usually results in good answers. And so it's a, uh, if you go to like what Daniel Kahneman's um, and Alex Tversky's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, you've got like uh, Thinking Fast where you like, oh, I can, you know, come to a conclusion about something. And, and you know, 90% of the time it, it's the, the correct answer outcome and that's really good because it takes a, a lot less uh, mental capacity to do that but if i want to actually think about things step by step and really get into the nuance that it's actually really uh difficult both like in brain power the caloric expenditure to actually do that uh, and so you know we're our bodies are like yeah well, let's optimize these things we don't want to be uh, using all those cal calories to like look at the nuance or everything let's let's have some hard and fast rules and it's you know uh they work most of the time and they get us through life but you know sometimes they're very wrong yeah and i, I suppose we could go beyond uh without you know saying that the biological stuff isn't there we could also say there's cultural factors that some some groups are um you know they tend more to labeling people like that and others maybe encourage more nuance or discrimination we could say um 
although we'd have to you know specify which ones we're, we're, we're talking about there and and avoid falling into calling like one the good group and one the bad group in that respect as well yeah um and and you you, you see this happen with oh uh, the first thing that comes to mind is the the um the hutus and the tutsis at um in rwanda and they're you know same people and they they a artificial designation was used to uh divide up this population it was based upon the colonial powers saying the uh, one group was the good group because they were the taller group and longer they had heads more, too yeah yeah more european longer heads or something and then they used that to pit these this people against each other and uh demonized one to the point where you know neighbors were unfortunately hacking up other neighbors it was you know absolutely reprehensible but it was you know they applied this label of bad against this one group and allowed that to be morally you know at least at that moment to be you know expected that you're going out to stop the bads yeah and and you know it's interesting this this is a little bit off topic but um you know i do a lot of work on anger research and in philosophy and one of the things that thomas aquinas says that i think is like totally on point about anger is that it 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 realizes that it's imposing something bad on somebody else you know so you you impose an evil as he says a malum on on somebody else but in this case it's okay because it's somehow like setting things right. So it's part of a bigger picture. Like maybe you're doing it because you're retaliating against them. You're paying them back for something they did. Or, you know, they shouldn't have crossed a certain line. Or they, they impeded you in, in something that you yourself desire. And so what we can recognize as generally bad when we're angry. And we can, I think we could say something similar about hatred too. We come to view that as, as a good and then we can justify doing all sorts of things to people. You know, you, you, you think about people, too, who will say things like, you know, if you hurt me, I'll hurt you seven times. Uh, and it just sort of ratchets it up or, as we say, escalates things. Um, I think part of the, the mindset behind that, because there's not that many people who just say, as, as Faust did, evil be thou my good, right? Um, most people are doing things that are, bad, harmful, injurious to other people because they do see it in some respect as, as something good or reasonable for them to do. Um, so, you know, looking at these mindsets where people label themselves, label their friends, label their enemies as totally good or totally bad is, uh, yeah, I think this could be quite useful. Mm-hmm. So uh, what was this uh, from Alexander Solzhenitsyn that you want to talk about? Yeah, so he had this great quote. And now he's somebody who suffered quite a lot, right? He, if, you, if you don't, do you know his backstory, I think, I right? don't, no. Oh, so he was in World War II, and I believe he was in, a ta- in, a, in the tank corps, you know, on the Russian side fighting against the, the Germans. And he got sent to the gulags. And the reason he did is because he, he made a joke about Stalin in one of the letters that he was sending back home. And the KGB would, um, uh, they'd open everybody's letters and take a look to see if there was anything that they shouldn't, you know, have in there. And making a joke about the great leader was, you know, that was enough to get you sent to the gulags. And the gulags were these prisons that were not just prisons. They were essentially... 
They were work camps and they were death camps. So the idea was that, you know, the Russians, and they'd been doing this, you know, long before the communist revolution and the, the you know, communist state, they'd been sending people to Siberia to, to be, you know, outside of Russian society and then also to slowly convert this, this uh, wilderness, very tough wilderness too, into something that would be livable for, for Russians, sort of colonizing and civilizing it. And it was incredibly um, uh, expensive in terms of lives. But they had many, many people. And this is one way to sort of kill two birds with one stone. You take your political prisoners and send them out there, work them, you know, giving them very little food until they eventually die of exposure, malnutrition, or, um, you know, the guards beat them or something along those lines, or, or kill themselves out of despair. So Solzhenitsyn got sent into the, what he, you know, he'll, he'll later publish a, a three-volume set of books called the Gulag Archipelago, these, these camps that were spread all throughout Siberia. And um, so he got to see a lot of human nature in its very unvarnished state close up. And so this is the thing that he had to say about evil and good. He said, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line, sep the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? So there's a couple things going on there. The, the very last thing, you know, maybe there, there is some badness within most of us. I'll say there's certainly some within me. And we're reluctant to, to look at it. We're reluctant to take it on. And so it's, it's easy to call ourselves good and just pretend like everything is, is wonderful. And then we project it outward, the badness onto other people and say, well, they're the, they're the, they're the bad ones. But really, even if they are bad, they're not totally bad. There's some goodness in them. Every human heart or whatever you want to call it, psyche, mind, is going to have some good and some bad elements. It's very rare that we run into somebody who's like totally, completely good or, or totally, completely evil. Yeah. Uh, it also, a little bit reminds me of the um, what the Span Stanford Prison Trial uh, experiments, as well as uh, you know uh, Hannah Arnett's uh, the banality of evil, just like seeing how uh, you know either regularly could be good people uh, do really incredibly evil things and and other contexts that would change yeah i i'm always a little bit leery about the extrapolation from the stanford prison experiment for two reasons one is that um i think it tells us much more about the the people that they were that, that they selected you know mm. who are college students the other is that we know there's problems with the study design because they came out later on you know um, but it has become sort of a trope that you find in, in everybody's psychology and business leadership textbooks and, and things like that and and we can point to many other cases where people have once given the authority to do so done bad things to, to other people with you know impunity really um, so is your uh feeling that it that it's not a, a absolute that there, there's still people that will buck the system oh yeah though, yeah that, that's your 
Because historically we see that. Yeah. 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 Well, no, that's a quibble with it. I mean, that's that's sort of my biggest quibble with it is that these these, uh, psychological experiments very often tell us much more about the typical undergraduate at Stanford than they do about, like, the rest of the people in the neighboring city who weren't drawn into the experiment, you know. What what is that acronym? Is like a white affluent male... it's like all these experiments are, are done on college students, you know, yeah, it's yeah. not so male anymore, but like it used to be as like everything was just like a whole bunch of affluent white guys. Yeah. And, and you can even say the generalizations. I mean, they talk about um, if I remember right and I don't remember exactly how the acronym goes, but, you know, weird countries. Right. Um, a lot of times, and th- maybe this is a, a sort of a broader topic, we focus in on a, a group for study and we assume that they stand for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, as a matter of fact, you know, again, if you don't mind veering a little bit off topic, somebody who I was just shooting some, some uh, lecture videos on today, David Hume, the mm-hmm. great you know, skeptic 18th century philosopher, he says some stuff that is almost amazing when you read it in print, but, but you do see people assuming this uh, quite often. And so he, you know, as, as much as David Hume said, well, you can't, you know, you can never know cause and effect and everything is just probabilities. He said that human nature is basically the same everywhere at every time in every culture. And we can know all about the Romans or ancient Chinese or about, you know, what people would be like in the, in the distant future by extrapolating from ourselves. You know, we can we can think about what, you know, in his view, Englishmen in the in the 18th century are like and the same basic motives, the same basic passions are are, you know, guiding everybody. It's just like, you know, like basically we're changing costumes and, and names and stuff like that. And, you know, you say to yourself when you when you read that, well, how would you possibly know that? You know? I mean, even if you weren't a skeptic, how would you possibly uh, know that? Um, how can you go back in time and, and make these these sort of uh, assumptions? I mean, the, the little windows that we have into what was happening, say, in Roman society are very small and, and mm-hmm. far between. Right. Um, and it's and, mostly the ruling class that we know about. So like exactly what is society like in the, on the street. Yeah, I mean, that's why the discipline of cultural history developed, you know, and, and the focus on like looking at uh, material artifacts and, and, and reconstructing what it was like for, for other people other than just the, the writers of the chronicles. And, but I think this is a very common thing. It, it's not just David Hume who thinks that you can do this. I think that, that many people are prone to assume that if you know this group here, you can, you can easily uh, imprint that or infer from that to what any other group would be like. So coming back to the Stanford-Princeton experiment, well, it doesn't really matter that we, we've just got a bunch of college students and no townies in the experiment. It's just fine, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, we, can, we can judge uh, what, what people will do on that basis. And then, you know, once it gets into what we could call the collective hopper of stuff that's taken as, as true, then everybody else picks it up and they do so un- unquestioningly as if but that was the problem with the reconstruction of the re uh, oh. when you do another experiment and it's not actually a re- replication yeah problem i that mean we had. the the social sciences seem to have a pretty bad track record when it comes to a lot of these um really important 
you know, there's, there's a word for it, not flagship, but, but something along those lines, keynote experiments, right? Mm-hmm. The, yeah, the turn- whole, uh, like, power poses uh, oh. was one of the... Yeah, the yeah. big ones, you know, everyone loved it. It was that big TED talk, and then no one could replicate it. Well, I mean, since we're already off topic, really, my my own personal point of view is if it's actually in a TED talk, it's probably wrong, you know, <laughs> because what happens, and again, this we can bring it, we can circle back to, to our topic. What are TED talks? They're these very produced ways of talking they're their own genre you're supposed to have slides behind you. you you come up with some catchy intro i've actually given you know a ted style talk and, I, and and there were people like coaching me on you need to take out all this content here mm-hmm. it was about anger management you know uh people aren't going to want to hear quite so much and i was like well this is kind of important stuff you know and, mm-hmm. and if, if they had their druthers it would have been reduced to 10 minutes of complete you know uh soundbite drivel you know mm. and 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 when when you listen to ted talks when it's about something that you don't really know that much about you're like oh yeah that's really cool that sounds good when you actually know the topic you're like wow this is off base and people are going to really draw draw the wrong conclusions about this this stuff cuz they left out this and this sweeping claim that they made doesn't hold up, you know, they got to make all sorts of qualifications. And I think we can say the same thing coming back to our topic about labeling people as good and bad. You know, it's sort of the, the equivalent of, of TED Talk um, culture where we're like, well, that person, and we don't say good or bad in TED Talks, we're like innovative, amazing, mind-blowing. Synergy. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So – you know, coming back to good and bad, and, yeah. and the, the basic idea here is there's uh, usually this false dichotomy of uh, good or bad, that either someone is a good person or a bad person, whereas there's definitely a, a spectrum here, or maybe a uh, spectrum's not even good, but like, look at their, the, the aggregate of their actions, and you can label each one of those actions good or bad. Uh, yeah, and, 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 and it's not just the actions, too, that we have to think about. It's also like motivational structure, you know, mm-hmm. which might be revealed by what they're doing consistently over time and what they seem to value. Or they might just come straight out and tell you, like, I'm doing, you know, these these actions that are being viewed as good, but I'm only doing them because I'm a selfish person who wants you to like me, you know. Um, or... Like I'm a you know unfettered capitalist. I just you know I'm gonna give you a product at the the lowest price possible because I want money and there you know there's no exterior motive besides him, uh, yeah, increasing his own wealth. You know it's based on avarice. Yeah, although it's, uh, it, it's it's funny. It there's a lot of people who portray themselves as being worse people than they are in terms of their motivational structures because they've been told that they need to do that sort of thing. You know. Mm-hmm. Like, um, you think about, well, think oh, about as ma- in like getting ahead in business. Yeah. If, if you're in a very competitive field, you're not going to say something like, you know, I want to make a lot of money so that I can be a philanthropist later on. And not just so I can like get invited to luncheons with important people and, you know, have a statue of me in the town hall. I actually want to like make people's lives better. Like, you know, build libraries or, you know, hospitals or something like mm-hmm. that. If you were to say that, like, in, in certain business areas, people would look at you and be like, well, I don't trust that guy, you know. Um, I want I want everyone to be just, you know, just in it for the money. Mm-hmm. And and I think there's, there's guys who pretend to be tougher than they are, um, 
when they're they're secretly doing good deeds on the side and they don't want anyone to know that you know and we we could go on and on with examples right. like this there are there are people who who portray themselves as more selfish or, or worse than they they actually are mm-hmm. and why do they do that because they they think if they don't do that something worse will happen right right uh and and so this idea of like we, we touched on it a little bit before like good people transferring their uh, goodness or badness, I guess, uh, onto their actions. Yeah. Um, and, and like, I don't want to go and bring about Godwin's law, but I am, you know, well, go ahead. Uh, <laughs> you got to say uh, what it is though. Uh, Godwin's laws, uh, like, uh, in any internet discussion, there will, uh, always be a point where someone brings up Hitler. If it goes on long enough. Right. I think yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, um, and so, so you're skipping to the, right ahead to that that point yeah yeah okay or maybe on the the whole of wisdom for life as a podcast we've now hit it um (laughs) so hitler is absolutely reprehensible on about as far down that like bad end of this good bad spectrum as we possibly get but he did love his dog and so like loving your dog is a bad thing, I guess that's not how I usually uh, represent that action. Um, but if if you use the uh, idea that the bad person uh, transfers yeah. his badness to all of his actions, or all actions, then uh, his loving of a dog is a bad, which I just doesn't seem to compute with reality. You know, I've seen people doing this with um, vegetarianism because Hitler was a vegetarian. So oh. they're like, oh, you don't want to be like that guy, you know? Mm. And, and there's there are so many arguments that are made that way where and I think in a lot of cases, the person doesn't really believe that the action is that way. They're doing it for rhetorical purposes, mm-hmm. but they'll say, well, you know, Hitler did this. So therefore, you you know, you doing this sort of thing, you know, Hitler breathed oxygen. So you really you, you got to find like nitrogen or hydrogen or something, some other alternative to that. I mean, it gets quite ridiculous when we mm-hmm. go that far, you know, in in. Uh, in my classes, I usually don't let students talk about Hitler, in part because it's it's too easy. Mm-hmm. We all know that he was bad, so you know, saying that some sort of action is like an action that Hitler or the Nazis would do, you know, it, it, it there's a kind of sloppy, lazy thinking associated with that that we want to encourage our students to get away from. Mm-hmm. And I don't yeah. let them do Stalin because that's the next one that they'll go to. <laughs> you know? you got to be interesting. You go, uh, well, the Impaler or uh, Caligula. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you've got to you've got to have in order to, to to make these classes effective learning situations. There's got to be messier, um, more complicated examples to to, to work with. You know. That's also why I don't I don't do trolley problems in class too because it's too it's too little cut and dried, you know. I want I want complex situations like our messy screwed up lives and and our right. uh, uh, hard to make good decisions about you know personalities and actions and, and motivational structures. So I guess since we're we're talking about like bad people, what yeah. what is the problem with calling other people bad? And this results in a number of potential pitfalls. One we've already figured out here is it's, you know, it might be rhetorically useful sometimes, but it's definitely not uh, rational to uh, make these associations between a good or bad person, however you want to define that, and their actions. 
Um, and uh, and we we are also talked about this idea of like what is um why do people do bad ideas and you know, we can uh, pull from the Mino uh Plato's the Mino discussing on um oh I actually had that just in place over here um uh, about why people do the good or the bad yeah yeah and this is raising the the issue of um um how people who know what something in general what the good is how they wind up doing bad things right yeah so uh you know this is uh everyone desires the good this is you know, socrates position and only do bad things because they have to deceive themselves into thinking that the bad they're doing is good and this kind of comes to this conversation between Mino and Socrates where they're discussing what is virtue. And at one point in time, Mino says the virtue is desiring fine things and being able to acquire them. And, and Socrates yeah. says, like, oh, yes, well, I've got something to come back at you with that. And it's like, um, uh, so those who don't recognize bad things for what they are don't desire bad, but what they think is good, though, in fact, it is bad. Those who through ignorance mistake bad things for good, um, obviously desire the good. Does it, do they not? Um, and I, I think you you push back against this at some points. Um, you mean in terms of like making it into a, a sort of sweeping covers everything principle yeah. to describe things? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do. I personally, I do think that <clears throat> there are some people who will will recognize something as bad in some sense and they will still want it pursue it you know we could think about addicts for example mm-hmm. as as one class of people they if they're not too far gone they know that what they're addicted to is is bad for them at least maybe bad in general and that they should avoid it but they find themselves compelled to and then they feel bad about it afterwards they feel regret and shame and things like that. But there's other people who are, you know, like you think about the sadist who desires to inflict pain and humiliation on another person. Um, if you go to them and you say, well, you know, you're really just mistaken about, you know, what's good and bad. Don't you understand that inflicting pain is a bad thing? Look at how that person's suffering over there. And they're like, yeah, that's exactly what I want. I like that over there. And then, you know, so your, your first approach to them is, is unsuccessful. Now you can like bump it up to another level, which I think we have to do in some of these cases and say, well, see, that person has got a distortion in another way, they think that you know, doing things that are that they know to be bad is actually good. Mm-hmm. So that you could say, well, they they still do pursue the good, but it's a more complicated structure. It's not so simple as well. There's just a easy mistake that they made, and we can steer them and show, oh, it's not nice to hurt other people. Wouldn't you have a better life if you got along with everyone? You know, there are some people who are like, no. I hate everybody else. Um, I want to make their, their lives miserable. That will be my, my uh, that will be what will make me feel happy or good. Um, and, so and one of the, the worst examples of saying someone thinking that they're doing the good was uh, the whole eugenics movement. They're like, Oh, mm. we're going to make a better human race by, you know, uh, murdering people and um like castrating them or at least it's chemically. interesting when you read the stuff that those people were, were writing like in, in letters to each other or, or saying there was that 
idealistic aspect to it, right? The, you know, you got to break some omelets to make a, make good eggs, and we're going to get rid of all the bad eggs, and we can mix metaphors all we want, right? So mm-hmm. there is that side. And then there were other people. You always get some people who are like, this This is going to be a good vehicle for me to do the things that I want to do to other people because I hate those people, you know? I can't mm-hmm. wait to see them wiped off the face of the earth. And, and there was there's, there's a good bit of that in there as well. Um you know, anytime that you see a reference to, uh, uh, you know, mongrels or things like that, you got to like be, you know, you, your ears kind of prick up and you're like, I don't know that that's just a um, genteel word for what they consider to be lower. And there's no emotional investment in their on their part it, that that's kind of looking forward to getting rid of that whole group of people. Um, so I, I think there's you know, with any movement like that, there's there's a complicated set of motives. And the same person could start out with one set of motives and then emerge five years later with another set of motives, mm-hmm. you know. Maybe, I mean, we do, we do see this sometimes. People get into things for one set of reasons and then they come out after having had certain experiences on the other side with with others. I'll give you an example that's that that's a good transformation when I was teaching at Indiana State Prison in, in the Ball State, you know, uh, prison college thing where they'd earn a four-year degree. They they got eight semesters and that was it on the grant that they were mm-hmm. being given by by the state of Indiana. And a lot of the prisoners would come in and you'd ask them, you know, they'd, they'd be kind of a, a pain in your class. You'd be like, why are you here? And they'd be like, I want to get out of the cell. You know, <laughs> this is something to do. Or I'm interested in the time cut that I'm going to get. Because they would get, if they got an associate's, they'd get one year off their sentence and a bachelor would take another two years. And some of those guys would be like that two years into their their education. And I would see the same guys because I was one of the few people who taught philosophy and religious studies classes there. So I'd get the same guys in my classes. And then every once in a while, you'd see this turnaround happen where they realized that education was actually a good thing. And that, mm-hmm. that you know, they'd been wasting their time up until now, kind of like pushing against us. And mm-hmm. now they wanted to get as much knowledge out of us and the classes and the materials as possible. And sometimes they'd express regrets. They'd be like, man, I, I kind of like, you know, I, I got my good grades, but I didn't learn that much in the first two years because I was trying to cut corners and, you know, um, I didn't, I wasn't receptive. I've only got two more years left. I got to make the most out of this. Now, those are two very different motivational structures, right? And the right. same thing could happen with any sort of, um, any sort of cause, I think. That must be uh, really gratifying for that, you know, turnaround to happen. Yeah, and it's completely contingent <laughs> what it does. You know, it's not like you can. It's not like you could pr- produce a class that would would do that. You you, ha- you know, like when they talk about with therapy, a person has to want to um, make progress. It's the same way with I think personal development. You can you can like give them all sorts of resources, but until something happens where they're like, oh, I want to I want a different course for my life, it's not gonna. It's not going to make any difference. So I think a lot of it depended on what was happening in the cell blocks, you know. So back to good and bad. Yeah, yeah. Calling other people bad. Um, we don't find a, a person, and um, it's almost no person can be that perfect good person, and we're all going to like fail at some point in time. And so yeah. it's really hard to, you know, say if if the good person is always good. 
than almost no one on Earth, or no one on Earth ever, um, has actually lived up to this moniker. And so it'd be really hard if you if that because is impractical your to use standard. It, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you had um, something on um, misanthropy. Yeah, this also comes out of a, a platonic dialogue, um, the Phaedo, where Socrates is talking with his friends shortly before his execution um, in the prison cell in Athens. And he cautions them against what he calls misology. And he's going to use misanthropy as um, a way to understand misology. Misology is a distrust of arguments and or or of accounts right so logos is is argument misos is hatred and he says we don't have to worry too much about that we could probably talk about that another time the misanthropy part um socrates says how do people become misanthrop misanthrop <laughs> misanthropes right uh yeah. misanthropic yeah there we go um what ends up it, it's a process they they make a bunch of mistakes mistakes in uncritically assuming people to be good. And so instead of realizing that the majority of people are, are, are not good or bad exclusively, they're somewhere in the middle. Um, like you mentioned, a spectrum. Maybe they are on a genuine spectrum, or maybe it's sort of like there's a lot of good and, and bad interfused, or they're good some of the time and bad some of the time. It's very rare we find somebody who's like good all the time or somebody who's bad all the time. Um, although maybe they, you know, maybe we do encounter some who are kind of close to the edge. I don't think we ever I see the perfect type, you know. So Socrates says that people are are foolish and imprudently trust people who are not completely good as if they were completely good. And what's going to happen if you do that? Well, you're going to get let down. Maybe you get taken advantage of, you know, and, and I think a lot of us have, have lived through that sort of thing. You know, we make friends with people and, and we're, we, we really want our friends to be good people. So we assume that they are, and then they don't pick us up when they say that they're going to, or they, you know, they, uh, walk out after you're running a tab or whatever it happens to be, you know, mm -hmm. it's moving day. They don't show up, you know, or they, they only show up at the, after everything's been moved and then they eat your pizza and drink your beer. You know, um, so that happens over and over and over again. And with each person, the, 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 the person who's going to become a misanthrope doesn't learn the lesson because the lesson would be, you know, I trust this person and they let me down. Oh, maybe I shouldn't place so much trust. Maybe I shouldn't assume that they're, they're the wonderful, you know, friend or whoever benefactor that I thought they were with a heart of gold and all those sorts of things. Maybe I should you know, look at them realistically. Instead, they go on to the next person and they do exactly the same thing. And then I want to clarify. Like, yeah. You said this happens over and over and over again. And you're referring to different individual peoples that they, they yeah. put, place their trust and then their trust is uh, broken instead exactly. of one person constantly breaking their trust over and over again. Whereas well, that would be at that worse. point. <laughs> yeah. But at least at that point, you, you have a, a much better a reasoning to maybe cut that person out of your life. You know, life. Though, I mean, there are people who, well, yeah, that, I mean, that's a great point. There are people who do that. Mm -hmm. They they come back to the same screwed up person over and over again, treat them as if they're an angel, get screwed over by them, and then they're shocked and surprised once again. You know, but yeah, mm -hmm. with Plato, it's it's multiple people, and eventually they get to the point where they like something something 
switches and they go all the way to the other side and they say people are all bad you know and so misanthropy is is hatred of other human beings but it's hatred because you think they're bad you know so why trust anybody people are all you know evil or bad or they're all going to let you down and then that that's a just an uncritical of a position as the one that thinks that everybody's good you know it's much better just to be realistic about it and say well if i don't know somebody they're probably belonging here in the middle part between good and evil um if if i'm in you know an area where i know people are all uh antagonistic like certain job settings well (laughs) maybe i should actually assume that they're generally bad although I, i shouldn't assume that they're all like the epitome of evil you know, yeah, and they might go home to their you know family, and they're like really good there. But like within the context of that job, there, who knows? <laughs> yeah, who knows? I was uh, just thinking. I was just thinking of a Rick and Morty cartoon. <laughs> uh, you've seen, yeah. yes. The, so uh, the one who's modeled after Freddy Krueger, I forget. Oh, I forget yes. his name, but he's, he's a, uh, chasing them around say it on our radio show here. No, I, but he, and he's got what like scissors, not scissors, but something on his on his fingers. Yeah, and uh, he uh, he's chasing them around, saying, "You can run, but you can't hide. I'm gonna kill you, et cetera, et cetera." Mm-hmm. And then like he clocks out, goes home to his wife and kid, <laughs> and they've all got the things on their hands too. Yeah, and um, you know. And he's he, a perfect model of a, a father. A good well, first father. he screws up, remember? Oh, yeah. He, he brings his work stress home and says uh, something mean to his wife. And she, like, you know, uh, yells at him a bit. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. You know, didn't mean to bring it home with me. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So um, I want to go to the, the pitfalls on the other side of, of calling other people good. And um, when you call someone, another person good, you support of them implicitly basically and you can fall into the trap of calling all of their actions good and you can attribute the value of good to profoundly evil acts and we've seen this um throughout history over and over and over again a lot of times when we have people in power especially within um religious settings or academic settings or uh anywhere there's a a large power dynamic commercial settings too i think you know think about all the people who um lost their life savings the staff of enron you know Mm. because they they wanted to be good company people and they looked at this guy kenneth lay and all of his cronies and they seem really good people you know they wouldn't screw us over bernie madoff was apparently like really stand up in his community it's interesting i read something an interview with him where at one point he wanted to like try to cut it off, which would have meant the Ponzi scheme would have collapsed at that point. <clears throat> and he couldn't, he couldn't get people to not want to invest with him. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and so, you know, and we've got a lot of examples of people that were at least at one point considered good and, or others that are still considered good, but they have certain aspects to them that are not as good. And so, you know, yeah. Um, Bill Cosby, we got the whole Catholic priest issue. Um, uh, MLK, a, a great person, but had an extramarital affair, and it was used against him by his political opponents. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, you know, uh, slaves plus Sally Hemings. Um, Alexander Hamilton, another extra, extramarital affair. Uh, many gurus. Uh, Bikram. Uh, what, what do you know about that? Oh, well, he, he uh, you know, like a lot of these these 
people who uh, develop a following and are innovators in some way, right? I think that there's there's something about innovator culture that that does this. They they're gonna like take whatever is available and uh, turn it up to eleven to use Spinal Tap's phrase. So Bikram is the, one of these people who you know started doing hot yoga, and um, you know some of the people involved in the movement started saying, well, this guy is engaging in sexual harassment or actually, you know. Uh, full-on sexual misconduct and 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 you know the, the dynamic then is oh you can't talk bad about the leader because he's so wonderful people want to you know change the subject to all the good things that this this person is doing and when you you know when you are a whistleblower or you are reporting somebody engaging in, in you know wrongful behavior towards yourself you often get quite isolated with within these communities and but then what ends up happening you know they they push some of the allegations under the proverbial rug and the person is still going to keep doing what they're doing sometimes emboldened by it and eventually it all does come out and then the people who were originally pushed out are vindicated in a way but usually not in a way where the you know like in a movie oh it's a wonderful ending and they walk off into the sunset they're still you know dealing with the trauma of having been told that they're the bad people, you know, mm-hmm. um, and may in fact even even believe it themselves. Um, and we see this with, with organization after organization after organization. Um, it doesn't have to be a religious or political organization. It can be um, a union. It can be, you know, uh, well, we were talking about this, this case of the ethicist Thomas Poga, right, who is mm-hmm. kind of a big name in analytic uh, – philosophy and ethics well it turns out he was sexually harassing graduate students and coercing them and um uh, you know again their allegations were typically dismissed oh how can you you know and people would say things like how can you say this about him his articles are so good (laughs) (laughs) and and you know um it turns out that that he was kind of uh, a rotten person in that mm-hmm. respect, probably again, not like totally evil. I'm sure he, he did so, a lot of good for other people, but he he did some clearly wrong actions that hurt a lot of other people and, and created an environment where um, not only, you know, it's, it's, it, when people like that do that, it's not only that they're doing bad actions by themselves, which which is already bad enough, but the hypocrisy involved um, scandalizes so many other people mm-hmm. and gets them to think, well, there's nothing to these these institutions. Everybody in them is bad. Sort of like the misanthropy thing that we were seeing. Right. You know? Um, so, you know, the good uh, caveat, or not caveat, the good uh, nugget that we can definitely come from this is that we uh, should definitely not listen uh, listen to someone like totally uncritically and yeah. uh, unconditionally you know you, you really uh should you know especially if you've got a feeling that this might be right you know or this might be wrong to you know, like take a, a step back you know and realize that people can you know even if you have hold them in high reverence can do some really weird and potentially evil things and so i want to yeah. go to calling yourself good okay um do you want to do you want to Call yourself good right now, or uh, uh, how about goodish? <laughs> okay, that there you go. Moving towards good, um, and um, 
so I guess within the the Stoic tradition, or at least the ancient Stoics, a lot of them called themselves uh, Procopton, uh, which is th- those who are uh, progressing towards a goal. And so the the, the Procopton strives towards a continual progress towards the perfection of the, the idea of the Stoic sage. And so you can say take the same idea and like apply it to your own individual stated values and say it's like okay i want to be a person that really exemplifies these things because that's what i consider to be the ideal of a good person and and you work at doing this thing because you know once again we're we're not perfect and we fail and uh, a lot of our motivation sometimes gets muddied uh by you know our biases yeah you know, I think that's kind of a constant in any sort of virtue ethics approach. This, um, you know, it's, and it's kind of funny too, because you look at it from the outside. I think a lot of people who are attracted to virtue ethics originally, they're like, okay, how can I be virtuous right now? You know, and you're like, well, it doesn't work like that. You know, first you got to like come in who you are. You're kind of messed up. You probably don't know all the things that are off with you. You probably think you have some of the good traits that you you do have are being obscured by other good traits that aren't really good, but you've just you're just using to compensate for stuff. So now we just start engaging in analysis and trying to look at our habits and, and what we're doing, and we use the text to, to help us out. And then um, you know you, you 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 become a little less screwed up. Right. And then the tendency is to think, oh, man, I've made it now. I'm totally virtuous, you know, and that's just not how it works. It's a continual process. You know, I think there's a lot of people who approach ethics in general as if it's like ticking off a bunch of boxes, mm-hmm. you know, and if you can just do that, then you're you're a goodie and, and you you don't have to do anything anymore. Mm-hmm. You've um, been certified. You know? And so this is you know, the, the crux of the issue is kind of this idea between a, a stagnant mindset versus a growth mindset. And so a stagnant mindset is like, oh, yeah, I've ticked all off all my boxes. I'm yeah. good. I don't have to work anymore. Whereas the growth mindset says that you basically you always have some ability to improve upon yourself. And, you know, in many aspects, you know, be it ethics or like you want to be an artist and so you want to draw every day or what there's, oh, there's yeah. a billion different things that we can try to become experts at. Um, and uh, and we're not like just given certain innate abilities. Some people do have you know innate abilities. Like Usain Bolt uh, definitely has the the body type to be a very good runner. I will never be as good a runner as Usain Bolt is, but I can be a much better runner than I am right now. Yeah, it's like Epictetus said. Um, maybe I can't be Socrates, but I can at least be a better Epictetus, right? Right. Uh. <clears throat> You know, it's interesting. One of the people I do a lot of work on is is Saint Anselm of Canterbury, and I, you know, he he had he left behind these prayers and meditations, um, which were circulated around Europe actually among nobility and clergy because what he he did some really interesting stuff in the rhetoric of, of prayer, and when you read this stuff and you look at his biography, he talks about himself. He's, he's talking to, to God or to the saints, and he's you know supposed to be like unveiling who he is, and it turns out that 
Um, he, he's, in his view, not that good of a guy, and he needs help. He, mm-hmm. needs, he needs to be restored to some sort of integrity. He uses you know, ideas like his soul having uh, sores and ulcerations on it uh, from, from his bad actions. And now when you read his biography, you realize this guy didn't really do many bad actions. Mm-hmm. He was actually a pretty good guy. As a matter of fact, in many respects, he was quite exemplary. And um, he was even humble about being exemplary without being sort of a fake humility and stuff like that. So what's the disconnect between these, right? Well, there's there's an easy answer for that, which is he made a lot of progress. Mm -hmm. And the more progress that you actually do make in terms of moral goodness, the more you start to see other things, other parts of yourself that until then you weren't ready to really face. And now you can actually see them and you're like, oh, man, sort of like, you know, like when you're building a house, you know, uh, or you're, you're rehabbing a house and you, uh, you know, you think you've got one thing to fix. And then you like, I don't know, you pull up some carpet and you're like, oh, there's some nice floors under here. Mm-hmm. Let me go down in the basement. Take a look at the, the joists. Oh, man, they're rotten. We're going to have to replace those. And then as you're replacing them, you find something else that's kind of screwed up. Well, that's that's the way. Um, that's the way it works in personal development, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and, and, and you're right. It could also be like musical talent or something like that. The better you get, the more you realize what you're not able to do. Mm-hmm. And you you're, you're aware of all these different aspects that you never were aware as just a casual listener of music. Yeah. I mean, could you say that there's – I mean, the, the Stoics talk about philosophy is the art of living, right? Mm-hmm. So could we generalize that more and say that being able to discern between what's genuinely good and, and bad mm-hmm. is something that takes us a long time to to develop and we, we, we tend to screw it up quite a bit, you know? Yeah, but it's at least it gives us a roadmap for, like, they, they say you acquire virtue in order to lead a, a eudaimonic life. Or, like, a, a virtuous life leads to a eudaimonic life or a, a life that is of an excellent human. A, a Flourishing, uh, yeah. Flourishing. Yeah. And um, and these are the the things that you should probably be focusing on if you want to be a flourishing human being. Uh, but they are uh, good in and of themselves. Yeah, it's. I mean, this is again a little bit off topic, but it seems like there's so many roads, so many approaches leading towards that. You know, even within a, a one particular tradition, like say Stoicism, mm-hmm. um, there's so many different practices that you can apply that that lead into that. No, no single one of them is like the the magic bullet, as they say, right? Right. It's it's yeah. a, a cornucopia of different things that, when put together, yeah, tends to increase. Um, your excellence as a human to get you closer to a more fulfilling life. Um, so uh, this the problem is is that, like attention. It takes attention to actually look at yourself in a really critical manner to be aware of yeah. your present actions and your present desires and your pres- present impressions. Um, but uh, constant attention is really hard. Uh, for a, a number of uh, reasons, but like one of them is. Like just our biology, and um, so Herbert A. Simon is a Nobel Prize-winning economist for the idea of bounded rationality, and this is uh, kind of uh, 
goes against this idea of uh, uh, Homo economicus, which was kind of like the the ideal of a a man that is personally rational. And so like the, the economics like, Oh yeah, well if you know, we've got this personal, per, uh, perfectly rational set of people and they all make perfectly rational uh, arguments or like decisions. And yeah. that's how we're going to uh, model economics, which is not any way in importance with, uh, reality. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so his boundary rationality was uh, some work that he, uh, helped put forward that like, you know, shows that, Every second we get about 11 million pieces of different information presented to us through our different senses, and we only have about enough attention to be uh, conscious of about 40 of them. And all the others are uh, our brain uses heuristics in a non-conscious portion of us to say, like, well, that's not useful at all. I'm going to ignore that. Or, um, hey, that stick on the ground. That looks like a snake. You should really yeah, pay attention to that. Yeah, things into each other. And, yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. It, like presents that to your more conscious mind, and and this idea that like there's so much information that we're making all these unconscious decisions about, um, is uh if we're if we have bad heuristics, uh then these bad heuristics result in really um potentially bad outcomes. Yeah, and you know attention is something that can be developed. I mean, that's what meditative practices typically do. The Stoics, um, we're not sure exactly what they did in terms of that. We know that they had practices that they were using, and they they stressed what they called prosoche, which we translate as attention, but, but could also be translated as um, mindfulness or something along those lines. But it is very difficult to do it for any sustained period. And it's like, it's like a muscle that you have to have to build. Um, somebody who's, who's, you know, you'd expect would be like totally about all attention all the time, who surprisingly says you can't do that is Rene Descartes, the great 16th century mathematician and philosopher. Um, you know, people who read Descartes usually read the discourse on, on method and, and the meditations and often only read the first two meditations and they get this idea, you know, I think therefore I am, right? So he's thinking all the time. So when he's writing to this brilliant woman, Princess Elizabeth of Bohemia, who um, had raised some problems for, for Cartesian metaphysics and, and philosophy of mind, he actually tells her at one point that most of the time what we're doing is not like the pure work of the intellect. It's actually our imagination drawn from, you know, sense, sense things, right? We're not doing this purely reflexive, um, metacognitive thing. Um, and he says, you can maybe do that like one hour a month if, you've, if you're trained. <laughs> so this is Descartes. Yeah. You know, somebody who has been training himself definitely had like natural abilities um, I mean, the guy was solving, you know, unsolved algebraic uh, equations as, as a, a young student in order to, like, get to sleep in. It was like a, a deal that he made with his, his uh, uh, like, the rector of the school that he was at. So he had, he had everything going for him. And even he's saying, yeah, you can't do this all that often. <laughs> so now how does that tie in with, with good and bad and, and viewing ourselves as, as good and bad? Um, so the, the idea here is... Uh one of the things that made me like go down this little rabbit hole was this uh, professor Dolly Chung over at NYU um, who's has this um, her, I guess her rallying call or like her, her, 
her core idea is to move yourselves to the idea of calling ourselves good-ish instead okay. of good, just so that we are really constantly aware that we do have the ability to mm. um, increase, that we have the ability to grow as uh, humans and... Um, Does she talk about the possibility of backsliding, too, or... Um, if we're not no, like choosing to focus, or yeah, uh, I did not see that. So, um, does not mean that she does not, though. Yeah, I'm just not aware. Well, uh, do we do we want to talk about the, the the practice that we think would help to promote this then? Yeah, because we're getting so, close to to the end of our time. Yeah, so um, reserving judgment is a practice uh, that I, I believe is in several traditions uh, as well as Stoics. Um, this the idea to instead of when you see someone um oh drunk in public there's actually a a, a very uh, uncommon condition where people actually ferment um grains in their belly so they're not actually drinking any alcohol but their body is producing alcohol and they're getting drunk anyways wow um which is a very very uncommon thing but the idea is that you don't always know all of the story, and there could be lots of reasons behind why someone is acting in a way that you would call them good or bad. Yeah, categorizing them, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, somebody could be drunk in public, and it could be, well, it, it was their birthday, and they hung out with a bunch of friends who were all heavy drinkers, and they were the lightweight, and mm-hmm. there you go. Or, um, you know, somebody just broke up with them, and they're drowning their sorrows that's not something they do every single day and and you know we could say this about a whole bunch of other things too where we see people do doing things where we're like yeah i don't like people who do that mm-hmm. they're bad you know we would we would say well you know we're not going to say that they epictetus says don't say that somebody drinks badly say that they drink you know more than they should mm-hmm. there's there's a very different um value assigned to each of those one is more factual one is much more morally imbued and we can then take this and apply it to ourselves because of this idea of the bounded rationality and we Mm. may not have uh like conscious awareness of some of the things that we do and we we might realize that we have done something bad and we can't just cause like oh now i'm a bad person it's like no i have the ability to be a better person because i have actually looked at myself and found something there yeah yeah there's i think there we could actually do a whole nother show about how people do improve themselves through you know focusing and discerning what they want to work on but it looks like we're gonna have to draw this one to a to a close so uh, we're gonna leave you with the words of seneca the younger we we should seek out the knowledge and tools which are capable of immediate practical application and learn them so well that words become works